Well, before we dive into looking at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a franchise or a series, we'll start from the beginning. That's Toby Hooper's 1974 classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, shot on a shoestring budget, you know, kind of you know, one of the early horror movies to use the conceit that it is based on a true story, which it was semi-influenced to some extent by uh, the murders of Ed Gein. Obviously very loosely adapted. A movie that's made a lot of money at the box office for that time period though it was banned in several countries uh released six years before friday the 13th four years before uh, halloween its impact aside from the fact that it was a box office hit is pretty significant this is what separates it from other horror movies it, it's it's a very raw powerful movie so even we're talking nearly 50 years removed. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is still a very powerful watch. Uh, I grew up watching, I mean, having grown up in the 1980s, by the time I was 10, I had already seen at least two of the Friday the 13th movies. I had seen Terror Train, Prom Night, uh, Halloween, uh, and I, I, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was actually kind of hard to find in video stores, at least in Canada. So I didn't see it until I would have been in my mid-20s uh, in graduate school living out west. So it, its reputation as a movie that was controversial, that was banned, uh, Hooper tried to reduce in filming it, tried to keep the, the actual explicit gore to a minimum. And in, in fact, if you compare it to other movies, for example, that would eventually make the UK's video nasties list. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not actually a very explicitly graphic movie in terms of violence. Certainly much of the violence that is implied is, is very disturbing. It doesn't have that kind of silly... Um, you know, fictional quality that you find in Friday the 13th, where it's a lot easier to, even though it's more graphic, to, to watch it. it. It feels very raw and brutal, what you find in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. But of course, the MPAA wouldn't, uh, didn't, didn't work well with Toby Hooper and, and still kind of saddled it with an R rating. And its reputation kind of followed it around. So again, it was banned in several countries, still managed to make a lot of money. In terms of its impact on horror in general, it was released around a time where there was still a very slow moving shift from kind of old traditional horror that kind of characterized the 40s, 50s, and 1960s, uh, whether it was kind of the atomic horror of the 1950s, early 60s, the gothic horror of Hammer Films. Now, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre isn't the only movie that really helped shift the horror genre into a more kind of experimental and I would use the word mature phase in the 70s. Uh, George A. Romero's a Night of the Living Dead played a huge role in changing the types of contact uh, content and, and approaches to making horror movies uh, than what had preceded it. Roman Polanski's uh, both Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby, uh, the, uh, the impact of uh, William Peter Blatty's uh, R. William Friedkin's The Exorcist. But The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was certainly uh, one of a handful of movies that changed the way in which horror movies were being made. So if you were a fan of British horror, in, in particular Hammer Films, uh, and had grown up watching their Frankenstein and Dracula series starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee uh, from the late 50s throughout the 60s, by the early 1970s, those movies looked really quaint in comparison to uh, A Night of the Living Dead or The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. These are movies that pushed the needle and changed what horror could look like and what kind of subject matter it would cover. So it's significant in that regard. It also played a huge role in the development of the slasher sub-genre. So 
The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, again, uh, predates Friday the 13th by six years. It predates Halloween by four years. It doesn't have all of the tropes that we would necessarily associate with uh, the slasher subgenre. So there are certain things. There's the terrible place, that remote location where a group of young people are warned not to go. There is uh, a final girl. There is a masked killer, uh, but it doesn't bring all those. It, it, it feels very different from, say, watching Prom Night or Terror Train or Happy Birthday to Me. But it does play a significant role in kind of laying the foundation or groundwork for what would come over the next several years. Of course, Black Christmas, the Canadian slasher, played a significant role as well. And then there's John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, Friday the 13th is the movie that kind of brought all of these elements together and really gave us what we consider to be the slasher, sub slasher subgenre and also kind of was an indicator that this was a profitable approach to horror. But the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, its impact on horror can't be understated, and it's today is rightfully considered a classic, which is an interesting starting place because if you look at the other slasher franchises, and I'll mostly just focus on Friday the, Thir Friday the 13th, Halloween, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. Those are kind of the big ones. With the exception of Friday the 13th, the other two have original movies that is john carpenter's 1978 halloween and uh, wes craven's 1984 nightmare on elm street critics uh highly regard those movies today and they were there was a, a high degree of critical praise for the movies at the, at the time of the release texas chainsaw massacre critics were initially divided but today it is considered a classic friday the 13th has never been praised or well regarded by critics i don't think any of the movies in that franchise have a positive tomato meter score maybe if i looked it up maybe jason lives friday the 13th part six does but it's pretty much a critically derided uh franchise but it's interesting when you kind of especially the comparison between friday the 13th and the texas chainsaw massacre because the original movies in each of those series texas chainsaw massacre is the better movie uh, and i love friday the 13th but friday the 13th really is a movie that's its biggest selling point is, it was its ability to bring together different you know, types of horror and, and put it into something that kind of caught fire with audiences and uh, kind of eventually entered kind of popular culture consciousness, I guess is how I would frame it. Whereas the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a standalone, that first movie, it, it's a classic of horror that uh, to this date uh, still gets probably listed in most critics, you know, best horror movies of all time. But for the casual horror fan, they might struggle to name or be able to point out any of the sequels that followed it. So it's interesting that that first movie, which was such uh, had such an you know impact on the genre, as compared to its you know spiritual, uh, we'll call them uh, brothers and slash and slasher filmdom, just haven't been able to kind of uh, crack the code, so to speak, that Halloween franchise. Elm Street and Friday the 13th hat. Okay, I'm not quite ready to dive into why I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a franchise or series hasn't achieved the same level of success, consistency, or even familiarity amongst horror fans or more casual horror fans, at least, as, say, some of the other 
the 80s slasher franchises. What I want to do first is look at the very first sequel in the series. That's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 that came out over a decade after the original in 1986. As an aside, I don't think the delay between the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the the first sequel has anything to do with why the, the series or franchise hasn't done as well. In fact, if anything... As I recall from the marketing campaign, which went something to the effect of, you know, after a decade of silence, the buzz is back. That delay kind of, at least from my perspective as a young horror fan, built up anticipation because, you know, it had to be something big after over a decade. Now, when despite having Toby Hooper back behind the camera and some of the talent from the first film returning, uh, most notably Jim Seidel returned to reprise his role as the cook. In this movie, they actually give him a name. Either the Sawyer family, he's Drayton Sawyer. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two did, I believe, marginally well at the box office. It recouped its its budget. Uh, it was not well received by audiences, even fans of the original, and critics uh, sour, were pretty sour on it, more so than critics were with the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre when it was released. It has gained a cult following over the years. It's it's had a number of you know reissues on DVD and Blu-ray, uh, much like A Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two: Freddy's Revenge, which to some extent has been critically reevaluated, or Halloween Season of the Witch, another uh, franchise movie that audiences did not like when it was released. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two has earned some uh, kind of critical reevaluation and deserving of it. But at the time, Toby Hooper gave people something that they did not want. So in the 1980s, most sequels, not just horror sequels, but sequels in general, tended to follow a similar pattern. That was to take what worked the first time around, kind of uh, follow a rinse and repeat uh, approach to the storyline. Do the same thing, just do it bigger, better, and louder. So Friday the 13th Part 2 is your, your classic example of a slasher sequel from that time period. It follows the same basic story beats right up until the the finale. It just adds to the body count. Everything is is bigger, louder, uh, and supposedly better. Toby Hooper did not want to recycle what he did in 1974. Uh, And in fact, what he had argued was that the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was intended to be something of a a, a black horror comedy, uh, like a bit of a satire. And that Audiences and critics missed that in the first film just because of how brutal and raw it was. In Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, then Hooper dials up this kind of dark or black humor. Uh, If the first movie has washed out colors and is pretty bleak, this movie is much more garish and bright. If uh, the characters were bizarre in the first film, they're they're particularly over the top this time around. Uh, The humor is, is very much evident. You have Dennis Hopper uh, entering the series uh, as a Texas Ranger looking to avenge the death of his uh, niece and nephew. So that's uh, Franklin. He is the portrayed as the uncle of, of Sally Hardesty and, and Franklin from the first film. This is vintage Dennis Hopper in the 1980s. It is a bizarre, over-the-top performance. And of course, uh, to replace... The uh, hitchhiker from the first film, they introduce Bill Mosley as Chop Top, uh, who's supposed to be, I believe, the twin brother who was in Vietnam uh, when the first movie took place. None of these things are necessarily explicitly uh, presented in the movie. These are, are things that have come out in director's commentary, et cetera, since the movie was released. 
But if you watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, Part 2, immediately following the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they are two completely different movies. Uh, and the sequel really alienated uh, audiences at the time. Uh, any plans for a franchise that probably had a significant impact. So while the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, again, it recouped its budget, but everything that followed it, at least until the remake uh, of the original that was released in 2003, the next two movies in the series are straight to video entries. To what extent that can be you know, brought back to the, the perceived failure of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, it probably had an impact. It you know probably was viewed as to some extent a, a riskier franchise, but Hooper, uh, you know, being kind of the creative filmmaker that he was, didn't want to give audiences what uh, they wanted and wanted to do something quite different. Again, the movie has it, it's a much better movie. I, I recall watching it as a young, so I would have been maybe thirteen. Uh, my dad brought it home on VHS uh, for a movie for my sister and I to watch. Again, it was the eighties. Parents didn't worry quite as much about what people watched. So there was a lot of anticipation. And at, at that particular time, as a, as a 13-year-old boy, I didn't get the movie and didn't like it. Now, as an adult, having rewatched it on one of the Blu-ray remasters, it's definitely, uh, a, I would describe, it, it's a fun sequel, and it's a very bold creative decision. But it certainly is, the if you compare the first sequel in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to the sequels to Halloween and on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. Now Elm Street's Freddy's revenge was also, uh, was met with mixed reviews at the time of its release, but still follows somewhat what you might expect from the series compared to those slasher franchises. The first sequel in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, is a, a huge, uh, really significantly diverges from what, audience expectations were and it does kind of in my opinion set the the tone if not the reason for why the series was never quite as successful or, or as well recognized as other slasher franchises one of the first problems that pops up with the texas chainsaw massacre franchise following the 1986 sequel Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two is that its its series history is is pretty convoluted stuff. You've got three different studios with at least probably three different you know identifiable continuities. You have some that have uh, of the entries have a very limited theatrical release. Uh, others have big theatrical releases. This doesn't obviously entirely explain why the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series hasn't had the same box office success as, say, A Night on Elm Street or, or Friday the 13th or Halloween. Each of those franchises has, has had some uh, kind of turnover in terms of what studios, for example, were producing and are distributing the movies. Halloween, of course, uh, has a very convoluted uh, yeah in terms of continuity or chrono chronology is, is somewhat convoluted. There's at least a few different ways you can watch those movies. And the Friday the 13th series really doesn't pay much attention to continuity at all. But it is something that probably does hurt the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series because the, the first sequel that follows on Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 uh, is Leatherface, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 3, or sometimes alternately referred to as Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 3. It was intended for a theatrical release in 1989. The Motion Picture Association of, of America wasn't happy with what they saw on screen. And of course, over the course of the 80s, the MPAA had kind of cracked down after the success of Friday the 13th on particularly slasher and horror films. So there's about 
roughly four to five minutes apparently that was cut out of Leatherface. Some of that has been restored onto some of the, the DVD and Blu-ray reissues that have come out over the last 20 years or so. But the movie was delayed uh, and ended up getting a very limited theatrical release, which is too bad to some extent because the actual initial teaser trailer is one of the more famous ones in horror history. If, if you're not familiar with it, you can check it out on YouTube. It's somewhat comedic in tone. It's, it references Lady in the Lake. Uh, it's, it's a rather creative uh, way to advertise the movie and probably is arguably the most creative thing about the entire movie. Uh, it, Leatherface is pretty much a, you know, I would describe pretty straightforward, uh, not on a lot of imagination to the, as a follow-up to uh, the original story. There's bits of continuity here and there. So, for example, Leatherface wears a brace on his leg that would reference the, the injury he sustains in the climax of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But like some of the other sequels, the, the director just subs in different characters for new family members to kind of surround Leatherface with very little reference to you know what we've seen in past movies. Really, the, the two most interesting parts of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 3 uh, is the casting of a young Viggo Mortensen. He pops up as one of uh, Leatherface's kind of bizarro cannibal clan members. And uh, veteran character actor Ken Foray, who's a, a fan favorite from Romero's 1978 Dawn of the Dead, turns up in a good role. Otherwise, this looks a lot like straight-to-video releases from the late 80s, early 90s in terms of aesthetics. I would describe it as a, you know, washed-out colors, uh, just generally ugly-looking production values, pretty unremarkable stuff. Then the franchise is dormant uh, for about five years in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, the next generation comes out. This is a little more noteworthy as compared to Leatherface in that it's, it's not just a bad movie, but one of those bad movies that are in the annals of bad cinema. Um, it stars a young, before they were famous, Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger, uh, famously, or at least the rumor has been, was always that years after the release of this movie, which saw a very, very small theatrical window before going straight to video, that the agents for Zellweger and McConaughey fought to try and you know, bury the movie entirely because they didn't want it to impact their career. And you kind of can't blame them. It's it's a terrible movie from start to finish. Again, it's it's noteworthy only in that it might be one of those guilty pleasure movies. The ending ties uh, Leatherface's family to some larger, you know, kind of Illuminati type conspiracy. It's pretty strange stuff. And then the franchise sits dormant for several years before uh, Platinum Dunes. That's Michael Bay Studio. If you remember, if you grew up or came of age watching horror movies in the 2000s, there are a few things that characterized that decade in terms of uh, patterns or, or themes in horror. And one of them was the, the remake craze. And the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake is one, if not the first remake that really kind of kicked off this kind of uh, pattern of big studios pillaging VHS, VHS video store shelves looking for any old 80s horror movie to do a remake of whether it was the stepfather or prom night we got all kinds of remakes in that decade uh, some were good most were not the 2003 texas chainsaw massacre it's not a surprise to see why studios saw potential in, in doing remakes because it made big money i think it cost uh, less than 10 million to produce made well over 100 million dollars it was a fairly big hit 
while there was some criticism and and maybe diehard Texas Chainsaw Massacre fans are, are divided or polarized over the quality, in general, it captures the tone of what made the first movie a success. Obviously, because it's a big studio that's remaking it, as compared to Toby Hooper's original, it looks more polished, nice production values. It has a fairly recognizable cast, including Jessica Biel. Uh, but it was hugely successful. But then the follow-up three years later, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Massacre the beginning, which is a prequel to the remake, uh, does significantly less money at the box office and very much plugged into. So another pattern or trend of 2000s horror was uh, you had new French extremity over in France and you had kind of the rise of torture porn. You had filmmakers like Rob Zombie and Eli Roth um, that kind of grew up with those kind of grindhouse exploitation movies of the 70s, making movies like Hostel, The Devil's Rejects, House of a Thousand Corpses. So you also had Saw, again, I mentioned torture porn. So extreme graphic violence was, was a feature of a lot of horror movies at the time. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning really plugged into that trend to the point that some people felt that the movie was, was pretty, not just violent, but sadistic and a bit nasty. Part of that, you know, diehard horror fans probably appreciated that, but in terms of its widespread uh, market appeal, that probably hurt it. Uh, and then the series again sits and not much happens for about six or seven years. Then we get Texas Chainsaw 3D. So when we talk about legacy sequels, we, we focus on Halloween, uh, the 2018 legacy sequel to the original. Texas Chainsaw Massacre actually took the first kick at the can at this one. Texas Chainsaw 3D, so they, they dropped the massacre from it, is intended to be a direct sequel to the original movie, the opening uh, prologue, in fact, actually immediately follows on the events of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. They even bring in Bill Mosley uh, to play the role of uh, the cook, which is a nice bit of casting. But um, it's a pretty terrible movie. It was pretty derided. One was kind of the kind of late hitching its wagon to the uh, 3D uh, bandwagon that was pretty popular in the late uh, 2010s, or I should say late aughts, early 2010s. Uh, it didn't really feel right. There was lots of problems trying to understand the timeline continuity. There's terrible pieces of dialogue, including one gem that comes in the climax of the film. It's pretty cringe inducing. It was forgotten pretty quickly. Then you get yet another prequel this time also called Leatherface, just not without the Texas Chainsaw Massacre part three. Leatherface was released in 2017 and came with a lot of promise because it has Julian Mori and Alexandra Stilo who made the new French extremity movie inside. They're the, the directors behind this, but uh, this release, it stars Stephen Dorff. It has um, uh, Lily Taylor as well. So as a recognizable cast, the premise itself actually was quite interesting. The idea of one of the Sawyer clan members being removed from their home as a child and put into an institution, uh, a riot that sees uh, several uh, institutionalized individuals or patients escape with a nurse as a hostage which one is actually leatherface this idea of you know kind of like a, a horror movie road trip somewhat similar uh, to the devil's rejects the premise actually seemed to have a lot of promise it's not a bad movie it just the premise isn't doesn't fully work as the movie gets to its end point Part of the problem with the movie is that there's an obvious choice for who Leatherface should be, and instead it feels like to try and, in a very inorganic way, fool audiences, they pull in a, a final twist that just doesn't work. 
In terms of the history and all the different sequels and prequels, the Leatherface 2017 is certainly not bad. The problem with it, of course, is that it, it doesn't go anywhere. And once again, the series sits dormant until uh, 2022, early February. So after finally getting back into theaters again, after the remake and prequel, uh, this time Texas Chainsaw Massacre so is right onto Netflix. It's the second attempt. So we've had two attempts at prequels. Uh, this is the second attempt for the franchise at a legacy sequel. So it's again intended to be a direct follow-up to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It finds a much older uh, Leatherface living in a small dying town where a group of influencers, uh, kind of young 20-somethings, show up in the attempt to kind of auction off the town for developers from other areas to kind of regentrify this small Texas town. Obviously, this, this attracts the attention of Leatherface, who's you know, much older. It also brings in now the original actress who played Sally Hardesty. Uh, Marilyn Burns had passed away. They bring in a new actress to play the character. Kind of what they were trying to do with this legacy sequel was follow the pattern or formula that was followed with the Halloween 2018 legacy sequel to try and bring back a legacy character, in this case, Sally Hardesty, who I believe the way she's patterned, she's a Texas ra uh, ranger who has spent you know, the last 40 plus years searching for Leatherface. It doesn't work uh, for a lot of reasons. We won't go into the details, but it, it's a formula that doesn't fit the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The actual sequel itself is pretty decent. I, uh, there's a review available on the blog, but the way I looked at it was is if this had been called something else and wasn't referred to as a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's a fairly decent slasher movie. Some of the trailers raise concerns about tone that there might be comedic, comedic elements, but for the most part, it's a fairly straightforward, what I would call intense uh, horror movie with you know pretty intense graphic violence and a shocking ending. Is it a good Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel? Audiences were, were polarized on that one. But in terms of the history of the franchise, it's far from the worst thing that's been released. Again, really, the biggest problem for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is you've got all kinds of starts and stops. There's no commitment to any one singular vision, in part because the, the franchise has been bounced around from studio to studio. You have movies that have limited theatrical release, releases, some that are in theaters with uh, sufficient marketing and others that are dumped on Netflix, but no overall commitment to any type of, of vision whatsoever. Part of that convoluted history has probably impacted the, the success of the franchise overall. Another big problem with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it's one that I would argue is probably one of the main driving factors as to why the franchise hasn't seen the same level, level of success as, say, Halloween or Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street, is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series is an entirely different beast altogether. So this is a, a series about uh, a, 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 a depraved family who are cannibals who uh, brutally torture and, and murder people. If we start off first with the, the subject matter of cannibalism, cannibalism is taboo, always has been, still is taboo today. Yes, there are other horror movies that have used cannibalism, oftentimes, sometimes in, in, in dark comedies. There was uh, the late 80s movie Parents uh, with Randy Quaid. There was, of course, last year, there was Fresh that was out on Hulu. 
for those that grew up in the 90s, maybe you remember it's a smaller movie, Ravenous, which was actually quite good. It starred Guy Pierce, but kind of obscure. But those weren't big hit franchises or series. Those were all small kind of dark comedy uh, movies, two of which, again, probably don't ring a bell with the average horror fan. The subject matter of cannibalism is, is not something that is probably going to lend itself to a modestly budgeted, widely distributed theatrical horror franchise. A Nightmare on Elm Street features a child killer, and somewhere beneath the surface there is, in the original movie, it hints a little bit that Freddy Krueger, who abducted and, and murdered children, there's always that hint that maybe, you know, there, there's something else, uh, but they never actually uh, really address it. In fact, the remake to A Nightmare on Elm Street that was released in 2010 does go in that direction and, and moves beyond implying that Freddy, Freddy Krueger's crimes went beyond simply murdering children, and that didn't go over very well. That remake didn't lead to any you know kind of reviving of the franchise. Halloween is just about kind of a mindless uh, shape of evil that randomly kills people, and then Friday the 13th is, we all know it, it's just your standard slasher series. Texas Chainsaw Massacre comes with, and I don't think that the right term is baggage, because part of what makes the original movie so successful and such a disturbing movie is its subject matter. But it's the subject matter in and of itself that also probably limits its appeal to wider audiences. Even if you move beyond the subject matter of cannibalism and really rewatch the original movie, Whereas Friday the 13th, for example, I would describe the, the killings that are in it. And a, big, and a big draw, of course, of slasher films are kind of the over-the-top, uh, well-orchestrated creative kill scenes. So, for example, one of the slashers that followed in Friday the 13th in that kind of original kind of explosion of, of popularity in the subgenre was Happy Birthday to Me, uh, which advertised itself on its on its promotional materials and its poster as featuring some of the most creative kills you will ever see. And of course, the, the famous poster has the shish kebab murder, if you're familiar with it. If not, you can look it up. Slasher movies are supposed to have these creative over-the-top kill scenes that oftentimes are somewhat cartoonish in tone. While Friday the 13th has lots of jump scares, it's not a disturbing movie. A Nightmare on Elm Street is certainly scary in the original film lingers with you it's a bit disturbing but very quickly by part three dream warriors the, the series had kind of morphed into more of a cartoonish uh, albeit a rated r cartoonish horror series uh halloween never was cartoonish in tone but the emphasis in the original movie was never on graphic violence it's nowhere near as graphic as people think. Yes, Halloween Part 2, uh, they kind of forced the director, Rick Rosenthal, to add more kind of uh, graphic violence just to keep pace with other movies. But even that series is still, I would describe the later sequels as more standard uh, slasher movies. Whereas the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original movie, and its subject matter in and of itself it is brutal, it's disturbing. Again, it's something that's probably going to have a limited audience. Uh, so it's you know, it's just not something that's going to lend itself to big box office franchise success. The last thing we're going to touch on is a little bit more subtle. So yes, on, on one hand, 
te- the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series, it's, it's, its subject matter, what drives the basic narrative of, of the slasher franchise is probably less appealing to a wider audience. It's not just jump scares and kind of cartoonish shocks. This is more of a, a subtle problem. It's really studios and writers misunderstanding the appeal of the series. That is what actually works about it. So not surprisingly, a franchise needs something that is readily kind of recognizable to mainstream audiences. Even people who aren't horror fans, if you show them the goalie mask, they know who Jason Voorhees is. They might not know the last name Voorhees, but instantly a goalie mask triggers Jason and people associate that with Friday the 13th, even if they don't like or watch those movies. Non-horror fans know who Freddy Krueger is. They know that it's this Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. They have a vague awareness of who the character is. Michael Myers, again, has that same kind of cross, uh, I would say, cross-market appeal. Non-horror fans would recognize that mask or that image. Uh, Chucky has the same recognizability, maybe to a much lesser extent, Pinhead. So it's not surprising that if, if you want to make a horror franchise, you need something like a symbol, a character that people instantly associate with your series. So it makes sense that producers, writers would turn to Leatherface. He's the most disturbing of the characters. Uh, the idea of someone wearing human flesh on their face, a mask uh, made of human flesh, is terrifying. A chainsaw as, as a weapon makes sense, and it's, it's disturbing, it's frightening. So it's not surprising that some movies have really focused heavily on that particular character, but those are sequels that forget that what made the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre frightening and to what extent Leatherface as a character play a role in that is far smaller and more reduced uh, than what they probably imagine. That is, if you watch the first, te- first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yes, Leatherface is probably the image that you will walk away from. Some of the most shocking moments in the movie involve that particular character. But they're not the only thing, and they may not even be primarily what makes that movie frightening and or disturbing. In fact, I would argue that two of the scariest or most tense scenes uh, are scenes of extended tension or suspense either don't involve Leatherface at all, or he's only one component of it. One of the most tense scenes in that movie, in fact, is the hitchhiker. That is when Sally, Franklin, and their friends pick up the hitchhiker from the side of the road, that that brief van ride, that chunk of 10 to 12 minutes, however long the scene plays out, it's scary, tense stuff. That character is frightening. The next probably most prolonged scene of fright and terror is the dinner scene that comes at the end of the movie. That involves the cook, the hitchhiker, and Leatherface, and Grandpa, and kind of the, the scenery or backdrop itself. So, you know, chairs made of skeletons, lamps made out of, you know, human heads. Uh, it's a terrifying scene in which Leatherface is one component of it, but he's not necessarily even the primary driving force. If you look at the 2003 remake, and again, fans of the series are probably divided. Some are probably resentful that a big student studio cleaned up Toby Hooper's you know, original indie horror film and made it look like a bigger budget movie with recognizable actors. I would argue it's still a very good horror movie and does respect and plug into the tone of the original. But that movie also recognizes that Leatherface is not necessarily the driving force behind what makes the concept frightening. Again, he's a significant presence in it. Uh, it's, it's definitely something you associate with the franchise. 
But again, in this particular remake, they create a new family uh, to surround Leatherface, this time referred to as the Hewitts. But one of the most frightening characters in the movie is not Leatherface, it's uh, Sheriff Hewitt, uh, played by Arlie Emery. Emery. My apologies uh, for butchering that. Of course, the, he's famous for uh, for Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket playing the drill sergeant, was a former drill sergeant, uh, a great villain in films, an intense actor. And in fact, he delivers one of the most intense moments in the movie and is probably the most frightening character in it. There's the tea lady who, while she may not be frightening, is part of that kind of bizarre imagery we associate with Leatherface's extended clan. But the, the sequel does recognize that it's not just Leatherface. He's surrounded by a family of kind of bizarros that makes it frightening. Whereas if you look at those movies that have that have failed or stalled, it's ones where they they try to put Leatherface too much front row and center. I guess you could maybe even argue that they they give too much of the character because the character is limited. Um, he doesn't have the dialogue of, um, of a Freddy Krueger. He doesn't have, um, Michael Myers has a, a different, almost supernatural presence. Similar more to Jason Voorhees. Uh, and again, then you start getting into differences between kind of tone and subject matter that makes Friday the 13th probably easier to market to larger audiences than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I would argue is that one part of the problem with the franchise. And again, it's, it's a, a subtle problem is that studios just haven't, in addition to not being able to kind of agree on or, or settle on one kind of tone and vision for what the series should look like. The series also bounces around in terms of how much importance they place on Leatherface as a character. The, the movies that tend to be the more memorable, the more scary, the more disturbing are the ones that recognize that Leatherface as a character works better when he's a supporting player in this kind of bizarre kind of cannibal clan or family uh, with other characters that can deliver dialogue, uh, is, is a standalone character. He doesn't work quite as well. And that's probably, I would say, is one of the, the limitations of Netflix's 2022 legacy sequel is it, it just ignores, but also adds in a family member that doesn't make, there's problems with continuity, but Leatherface works better is my, my argument is he, he works better as a character when he has a supporting cast to surround him. Uh, and I think that's one of the problems that's impacted the franchise as well. Well, that wraps up episode three of the Abominable Dr. Welsh podcast. So this week, again, we've been looking at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a franchise and exploring some of the reasons why it hasn't had the same level of success at the box office or with audiences that series like a Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Friday the 13th have enjoyed. Uh, next week's episode, which will come out probably sooner than next week. So again, I've been a bit delayed getting episodes out with holidays and work, but I'll hopefully get back on track with doing an episode a week. Next week's episode, I want to take a look at actually one of the subjects of the capsule reviews I'm going to leave you with on this episode, and that is The Last Voyage of the Demeter and Renfield and the, the uh, kind of both of those movies have done poorly at the box office or have been disappointments at the very least. And the, the conclusion that has been drawn by uh, kind of entertainment media and studios is that it's audiences aren't interested in Dracula anymore. I would argue that may not necessarily be the case, but that is our next episode. 
I did want to leave with a couple of capsule reviews. There, there's full reviews of these movies available on the blog itself. But in the last couple of weeks, I've had a chance to get out to theaters and see the Meg, uh, our Meg to the Trench, and the Last Voyage of the Demeter. So I'll start with Meg to the Trench again. The full review available on the blog. But uh, I was, you know, just as kind of uh, being very upfront, I was not impressed with the first Meg. I thought it was underwhelming. It's not a movie I've added to my physical media collection. It's not one. I would have any interest unless I had absolutely nothing else to watch. I thought the cast, uh, the hiring of Ben Wheatley to direct Meg to the Trench was an odd choice. And after seeing it, I'm not really sure you know, what impact he actually had on the movie. It certainly doesn't feel like anything Ben Wheatley would actually do. That being said, uh, Meg to the Trench, I liked infinitely more than the Meg. Again, I had lowered expectations, but as far as I'm concerned, this is exactly what you would want out of a, a mid or early August summer blockbuster release it's it's a dumb popcorn movie about giant prehistoric sharks and it delivers pretty much on exactly what it promises it is a bit of a frankenstein's monster uh, of a story that is there's probably three different movies stitched together to make one for at least half of the movie the megs themselves play a very reduced role the movie introduces human villains it feels very much like the uh the underwater aquatic horror movie that came out just before COVID in 2020 called underwater. Not as good as that movie, but some of those scenes actually work. In fact, I would argue the fact that they put for half the movie a reduced emphasis on the Megs is part of what makes the movie work. From my perspective, what makes sharks scary is not the size of the shark. It's the thought of something coming up from under, uh, under the water beneath you and pulling you down. Whereas Megs are so big, they just kind of like Jonah and the whale, Jonas and the whale, they just swallow you whole. Uh, and I don't find that quite as scary. But it, it doesn't put as much, I guess, pressure on making the Megs work. Once it gets to its final act and the climax, it, it, the, the, the trench uh, or Meg to the trench, becomes exactly what it needs to be. It's campy horror that embraces everything silly. It's a very ton-in-cheek movie. The the final climax is very action-packed. The cast all seems like they're having a blast making the movie. If you walk into this one with modest expectations and are just looking for popcorn entertainment, it delivers. The last uh, capsule review, The Last Voyage of the Demeter, great premise, taking a chapter out of uh, Bramp, Bram Stoker's Dracula and, and expanding on it and, and building stuff into it. Great idea. It looks really good. Great production values, really good cast, great acting. It's not a bad movie, but it's one of those movies where you might be frustrated constantly feeling like there's a better movie in each and every scene. Uh, the climax, for example, it's, it has a great setup. It's, it's, it's not poorly filmed. It just never quite hits the notes you think it's going to hit. Part of the problem is that the uh, director who made The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which is a movie, if you haven't seen, is, is a hidden gem. But that movie is very much one rich in atmosphere and tone and kind of builds its tension. Whereas in this movie, it's more focused on... I mean, what I would describe is this is a monster movie with more emphasis on action than it is on actual horror. It's, it's not a rated R horror movie, so it lacks that intensity. It relies a little bit too much on a CGI monster that really, if they hadn't used the name Dracula, could have sub any monster could have substituted for the character. It takes too long to get where it's going since we all know what's hiding beneath the deck. Those are just a few of my observations. It's not a bad movie. If you're looking for something to do in late summer and want to check out a horror movie, it's what's available until something else better comes out. But it's definitely 
falls well short of you know what I would have hoped for. But that's it for this episode. Thank you again for joining me, and I hope you'll join me for episode four, which will actually be out much sooner, uh, so no more delays, hopefully. Thank you.